Bible Church is um, still running their uh, evangelism booth out there at the Fort Bend County Fair. And that's really a big fair, and it's it's kind of there's a lot of stuff going on. I walked around a little bit last last week when we were out there, but Jeff Phipps went over there Tuesday night, and they had uh, 20. He said they trusted the Lord, and they saw you know talked to a lot a lot of people. Some of them were already believers, so he um, uh, he's going to be going back Saturday morning. So if anyone wants to go out there. Uh, let me know or let j- just get if you've got Jeff's contact information just call Jeff and and go out there it's a great opportunity for you if if you don't want to talk to anybody you that's fine you can just sit there and watch them and learn what they're doing and how they're how they're going through the gospel and that's a good opportunity to get that exposure as i said on sunday morning it's helpful I found to watch different people who really are good at evangelism to do their thing, and you just learn all kinds of different things. And all of you remember uh, Gene Brown, and I was just always just uh, just flabbergasted when I would be driving somewhere with him or anything. And I remember one time something happened with the car. I think oh, the windshield wipers went out, and we had to go to a car, car parts store to replace the windshield wiper. And as soon as the guy finished putting the new windshield wiper on, Gene pulls out that little track he gave. He said, hey, you got a couple of minutes. I'd like to give you a little quiz. And it was that track we have back there where you ask different questions about which one of these things do you have to do to go to heaven. And then he just sat there on the curb right there in the parking lot and led the guy to the Lord in about five minutes. It was just amazing. So it's uh, it's a great opportunity to go out there with those uh, those guys. So they're out there. All day Saturday, and that doesn't mean you have to go out there all day, but it's a it's a great opportunity. And the other announcement is that on October the 16th, on that Saturday, we will be having our, if it doesn't rain, we will be having our church picnic, our annual church rained out picnic. So that will be on that Saturday. So we'll have information, I think, in the next uh, week or so, getting out there, sign-up sheets and things of that nature. So that's that's about it for announcements, right, Cheryl? Yes. No other? Okay, good. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have just a few moments of silent prayer so that you can be prepared to study the word. If necessary, confess sin and make sure that we are walking by the Spirit as we study the word so that God the Holy Spirit can uh, use this profitably in our spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we can be here tonight, fellowshipping around the Word with other believers. We're just so thankful for your grace and your goodness to us and all the different ways in which you have uh, provided for us and supplied our every need. Father, we do pray for our nation. We pray for the leadership in our nation. We pray for the fact that there are so many in positions of power that seek to do harmful things to this nation, that seek to subvert the history and the laws of this nation and many who don't even care what the law is. And we just pray that you will restrain their evil and that we will somehow be able to survive and that we as Christians can get our focus off of politics and onto your word and that we can shine as lights in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. Father, we know that this is a challenging time for many people because of COVID, and we pray for those in the congregation and many others that we know that are uh, uh, struggling or just gotten come down with it, and we pray for their 
uh, healing and that they will recover without any serious uh, consequences. And for us tonight, as we focus on your word, that you will enable us to understand it and challenge us with it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We'll open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. And after two months of working our way through the previous uh, ten verses or so, just to figure out what's actually going on there, we're moving forward. So I know that some of you are, are rejoicing over that because it seemed like a struggle. And, you know, you haven't seen the struggle I was going through trying to figure out so many different different things. But we're coming to the end of Second Peter. And so we're down to, uh, I'm going to pick up a little bit on 13, wrapping up what we covered in the previous paragraph. And then we'll get into the next section, which is 14. Uh, 14, 15, and 16. So what we've seen is that in this third chapter is that God is refuting the specific false teaching in light of the future return of Christ. And that's in the first, actually, 13 verses. I didn't change the reference in that topical statement there. In the first part of the of the chapter, we just saw Peter's reminder, his second reminder in the first two verses. And then the main uh, heart of this chapter is in verse 3 through 13, where God is refuting the claim of the skeptical false teachers as they utter their skepticism. Well, all things consider, all things continue as they once did. So where's the promise of his coming? And that that is the topic for verse 3 through verse 13. And now we come to the conclusion of the epistle tonight in verses 14 through 18, which contains a warning as well as a challenge to not fall into error, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're just going to be focusing on these three verses mostly tonight where Paul, uh, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, last time we concluded this study looking at verse 10 through uh, 13 on the timing and the uh, and correcting translations and misunderstandings and various other issues related to the coming of the day of the Lord, as it's explained in verse 10. At the end, which I just sort of glossed over the last couple of times, Peter ends by saying, nevertheless, we, that's talking about we church age believers, and remember his immediate audience were uh, Jewish background believers. He's writing to Jews who have an understanding of the Old Testament, understanding of a of the all the issues related to the Messianic kingdom, And so he writes to them and he says, we, according to his promise, that is the promise of his coming, that sets the topic back in the uh, fourth verse where the skeptics, the scoffers come scoffing, saying, where is the promise of his coming? So it concludes with this statement, according to his promise, going back to that promise of his coming. And as I pointed out, that frames this whole section which isn't at the end of the millennium. As I was pointing out, context, there's all the issues related to that. So that, again, gives a context to the second coming, not to the end of the millennium. Look for a new heavens and new earth. Now, we have covered that so much, but the only other times before this that that phrase is used is in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66, where it is clearly talking about the Messianic kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ 
on the earth. There's no concept in the Old Testament of what comes after that. Okay? So, he describes this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, this is important because I just want to run through a few passages very briefly showing that this is the description that we find in the prophets in the Old Testament, that the millennial kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, a tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous messianic passage. And there's actually, I've got a list at the end, but there's another passage in Jeremiah that's almost identical, saying this, making the same basic points about the coming of a descendant of David. A passage reads, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. Another way you could translate that genitive there, just calling it, I will raise up to David a righteous branch. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So this is describing the millennial reign of the Messiah. In verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Isaiah 126, God says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city, speaking of Jerusalem. In Isaiah 16:5, in mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth. This is talking about the Messiah sitting on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. One will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Isaiah 32, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Isaiah 32, 16, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And one which I think is extremely strong, Daniel 9, 24, Talking about the time frame for future Israel, 70 weeks are determined. We've gone through Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy many times. That's the 490-year time clock for Israel. Started in about, um, I think it was around 414 B.C. and goes up to the time of Christ for the first 173,880 days. And then it stops. And then there's this break between the end of the 69th week and the, after that, the Messiah is cut off and the, uh, then the uh, people of the peace of the prince to come are going to destroy the temple. And then we don't know how long that gap is between after that, after that 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. And the purpose for these 70 weeks is stated in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And then these phrases all are what's completed during that 70th week. To finish the transgression, that is the transgression of Israel rejecting the Messiah. To make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That happens after, at the end of that uh, 70th week, at the end of the 490th year. So that kingdom that is brought in is a kingdom in righteousness, and that is what we see emphasized at the end of this, this section 10 to 13, a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then we come to verse 14. 14 down through 18 is the conclusion, and it starts here with a therefore, 
which means whenever we see that, we have to see what it's there for. Now, I just saw something in my notes that I thought I'd put this in a slide, and I did not. Let me give you some other references that talk about righteousness in the kingdom. Isaiah 32.17, I had 32.16 up there, 32.17, Isaiah 33.5, Isaiah 45.13, Isaiah 54.14, that's 45.13, and 61.11, okay, everybody get that? And then Jeremiah 33:15 to 16 is parallel to Jeremiah 23:5 to 6, which I put up there. And there are many other passages. I'm just wasn't going to just go through every single one of them, but that is a solid representative group of passages talking about righteousness coming in when the Messiah comes. All right. Second Peter three. 14 and 15, and we'll see if, uh, I don't think I'll get past the middle of 15. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And then there's this M-dash. An M-dash is that long dash. You have three different lengths of dashes, for those of you who don't know. You have a, a dash, an in dash, E-N, that's a little sh- little longer than a dash and not as long as an M dash, and then you have a long M dash. And so you put that in there instead of uh, parenthesis. Parenthesis indicates that something's not quite as significant, but an M dash indicates there's a pause and it's another, um, usually it's some sort of, uh, appositional phrase, or he's going down in another, going off in another direction, which is what he does here. But it's related to what he is saying in the first half of the verse. So it's not going to be a period and then uh, the statement about Paul. So that is going to be important to look at because when we get there, we're going to see that the reason that, and this is a King James, New American Standard does, just has a comma. Um, uh, just as to separate, no, uh, excuse me, the New American Standard has a semicolon. So you get into all this stuff. If you ever write, you've got to understand all this little punctuation because there's none in the Greek. So they're all trying to somehow represent what they sense is, is in the Greek. But it's going to come down to the fact, I read this at the beginning, it will come to the end of verse 16 talking about the false teachers. So there's this contrast again between believers and the false teachers. And the false teachers are described as untaught and unstable. Now, I wanted to bring that out because one of the words that we're going to have to look at here is related to stability when we get to looking at the the concept of what it means to be diligent and the context in in Second um, uh, Peter one ten that that this has to do with stability and that's brought up by Peter several times in this epistle the importance of believers growing to spiritual maturity so that they are stable despite whatever else may be going on around them. So that's this this contrast. So I just want that to be in the back of your mind as we go through this. So what I want you to notice in terms of the structure here is that there are two verbs here that are that tie the whole this whole section together. These two verses. The first is the imperative to be diligent in verse 14, and the second is the imperative to consider or to think about something. So we have two things that he is saying. It's just basically a compound sentence. I want you to do two things, be diligent and think about this. So we have to look at the structure. He starts off with the word, therefore, uh, which in the and the flow of this passage is is a stronger word for therefore in the Greek, and it's bringing to us to uh, the conclusion not of the whole epistle, but of this section from three through thirteen. He's going to draw an application, and the application is very similar to the application that he drew in verse eleven, 
which if you look at, if you have a King James or New King James, verse 11 begins with a therefore, but which is probably, I think, is the better reading. It's the majority text reading plus two of the oldest manuscripts. Uh, the lack of it, of the therefore, is in the critical text, which is what you find in New American Standard and NIV and ESV. But there's, there, there are basically two, two conclusions here. Verse 11 said, after talking about the, what, the, the destruction and judgments that are coming at the end of the, uh, of the tribulation, he says, since all these things uh, are, yeah, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Prophecy is never given just to satisfy curiosity about the future. The purpose for looking at prophecy is always related to current conduct, how we live today in light of the future. And so the future here, in, as I pointed out last time, in the view that, that I've always taught and always held and you've always heard, that this comes at the end of the millennium is a problem uh, with this application because at the end of the millennium, there's a judgment, and that's the great white throne judgment, and that's only for, for unbelievers. So he's making an application here that in light of what's going to happen, we need, as believers, we need to live a certain way today. If that what happens is the great white throne judgment for unbelievers at the end of the millennium, what does that have to do with us? We're already going to be resurrected, rewarded, and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So the application doesn't seem to, to fit in that scenario. So we get the other conclusion here in verse 14. He says, Therefore, beloved... And he is clearly addressing them as believers. When you have writers of Scripture addressing believers, they're either using the term brother or they're using the term beloved, indicating that they are beloved of God and they are in the family of God. They are believers. And so he says, uh, therefore, uh, therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things. But the first thing I want to do is not looking at that phrase, but I want to look at these two imperative commands here. The first one is to be diligent, and that's the word spudazo. We studied that in Ephesians several times. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, it's translated, or I've translated it, make every effort to do something. Sometimes it's translated be diligent, but spudazo really has the, the idea of making an effort to be eager to do something, striving for something, and it always has the nuance of intensity or passion. And then the other word is the word hegeomai, which is a word for thinking. It means to think, it means to, to consider, sometimes it's translated count, uh, or, but it has that idea of looking at something uh, mentally. You're thinking about something, focusing on that. Now, that word spadazzo is used three times in Peter. Overall, it's used in 11 verses in the New Testament, seven in Paul, and three in Peter. I think it's just good methodology to see how does Peter use it in this particular epistle. So we go to 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, and this is kind of an interesting verse, and there's aspects of it that when I went back to look at how I handled this, last, was it last January? I think it was last January. Uh, no, it wasn't last January. It was January before. When I was looking at it, it was right in that period in January when I was getting ready to go to, go to Ukraine, and uh, there were some things I was focusing on, and I did mention most of this, but I'm adding a little bit to it. When I taught it then... I was emphasizing, again, the point I'm emphasizing tonight, that importance of growing to maturity for stability, that the believer has stability from his spiritual growth and his dependence upon the Word. 
But this is an interesting verse because, and this kind of fits with what I've just been teaching on Monday night in my church history course. We've just been coming out of the period of the Puritans in uh, England and in, uh, in America, the Puritans that came over to Massachusetts. And one of the distinctives of Puritan theology is that they didn't believe that you had eternal security or an assurance of your salvation unless you were bearing fruit that gave evidence of it. And the term that was used at that time for this was called experimental predestinarianism. Because, and by experimental, they meant experience, what we would call it experiential. In other words, the only way you know if you're really saved is if you have fruit that gives evidence of it. And that's pretty much the view of what we call today lordship salvation. And I remember the first time I really heard a solid defense of lordship salvation was in 1988 or 89, probably 88. And it was at the time of the Christian Booksellers Convention that was in Dallas. And a new book had just come out by uh, John MacArthur called The Gospel According to Jesus. And the owner of the large, we had a very large uh, Christian bookstore in Irving, where, where I lived and had a church. And Tommy Ice and I went to hear uh, MacArthur, and it was, they had everybody, nobody was sitting in t- uh, at chairs. We were all sitting on the floor. And I was just, just within the sneeze bar of MacArthur. So I was just sitting on the floor looking like this, getting a crick in my neck. And he went through his whole position on Lordship Salvation, and he came to the point where he was talking about assurance of salvation. And I was very concerned about his his articulation of it. And when it was over, I said, well, Dr. MacArthur, on the basis of what you just said, how sure are you you're saved? And he said, oh, about 98%. Because he's basing the assurance of his salvation not on the promise of God's word, but on the fruit he evaluates in his own life, as if he's omniscient enough to be able to do that, if any of us are omniscient enough to do that. And this was really the basic approach to uh, assurance of salvation among Puritan theology. They got it from Calvin. It's embedded in Calvin's theology. It was expanded on and systematized by his successor, who was Theodore Beza, And then another theologian came along in the late 1500s by the name of William Perkins. William Perkins uh, wrote a theology on on the chain of, I think it was called the chain of theology, the chain of grace, something like that. But this was the primary textbook. In fact, it outsold Calvin completely by the 1600s. And Beza and a Dutch theologian by the name of William Ames, who wrote a, a theology book called The Marrow of Theology, were the, uh, I think uh, Perkins was the golden chain, that's what it was. And they were what, who all the Puritans read. And this was their central verse that, that, that they went to. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, Arminians will go to this verse, like Church of Christ and some others who don't believe in eternal security, and they'll look at this and say, see, you can stumble. You can fall from grace. You can lose your salvation. But the difference between an Arminian and and lordship is Arminians say, well, if you commit certain sins, you lose your salvation. Lordship says, if you don't have fruit and you commit certain sins, you never were really saved to begin with. So they, they're not that far apart. When I've diagrammed this before, instead of a line where you have one on one end, one on the other end, I curved the line and they're right next to each other at the top because they're not that far apart. So this sounds like a, an awkward verse here. And then verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I dealt with that. This really has to do with inheritance. 
and rewards. It, it doesn't have to do with getting into heaven. It is what happens at the judgment seat of Christ and afterward. So I have um, worked on translating this a little bit. Other translations will translate that word, uh, make your call. They'll translate that as your calling. Now, we studied that in, in Ephesians 4.1. And remember what I pointed out is that the calling is a term that's like a profession. You talk to somebody, what's your calling? I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. That's a calling. It's a position. And as um, I, I translated this based on some suggestions that I've read by in a number of places, I can't even remember where I saw them now, uh, that calling is it's our exalted position in Christ. That's what Ephesians is all about, is who we are in Christ. And so I translated that even more diligent to make your calling, that is your exalted position, and then translating uh, election, which is a poor concept as choice status. It's the Greek word, we've gone through this a lot, uh, a cloge, which has to do with an appointment to something, a commissioning to something, an appointment for a special task based on qualifications. And when we look at the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election, it's sort of God making an arbitrary choice because they exclude foreknowledge from his uh, choice. And that contradicts what Peter says, that, that we're elect according to foreknowledge, but we have trouble with that word elect, and this is where I bring in the doctrine of the magnum bar. And I forgot to put that slide in. And um, that, if, just to remind you that one, one year when I was eat, eating away on one of my favorite things to, to eat when I'm in Israel, I'm trying to read the Hebrew script. And so I asked our, the translator, I mean, our, our guide, I said, okay, help me with this. I, I recognize one word here, at least the word, but what's this other word? And he said, well, it means choice almonds. And I saw that word bakar, and that's the word that's usually translated elect. And yet here in modern Hebrew, it was choice. Choice means it meets certain qualifications, and that this wasn't uh, that going out and just selecting certain ones, but selecting them on the basis of something. And so we've gone through this many times. In Judges 2016, it speaks about 700 choice men. That's a standard translation. The, uh, Bakar is translated choice any number of times not related to salvation in the Old Testament. And it has that idea of choice men. And the passage in Judges 20.16 talks about these left-handed slingers from the tribe of Benjamin. There were 700, and they could, uh, they could hit a penny at 100 yards every time with their slings. They were qualified. They had to qualify to be part of that elite warrior troop of left-handed. And really, the word there, as we saw with in our study of Ehud a couple of weeks ago, that left-handed really meant clo- one hand was closed. And the way they were trained was they would clo- wrap up, tie up their right hand so they were forced to be left-handed. In effect, they were becoming ambidextrous. And, and you really have a threat when your hand-to-hand warriors are ambidextrous. So they were, they had to qualify. Same thing happens in Matthew 24, 14 in the invitation to the banquet. At the end, it translates that many are invited, but few are chosen. But the only people who make a choice in the whole parable are the people who choose not to respond to the invitation and go to the banquet. So the ones who go to the banquet are the ones who have responded to the invitation, but nobody chose them. They, everyone was invited, but some uh, it, it came, and they had on the right garments. Remember the robe, uh, but there was this one that shows up, and he didn't ha- doesn't have on the right ro- ro- robe. He doesn't have on righteousness, so he's kicked out. So, And the conclusion is many are invited, but few are choice. In other words, they have to meet a certain qualification to be at that banquet in heaven in the kingdom, because, and that's the imputed righteousness. So that's really what's going on in 2 Peter 1.10 is the idea of being diligent. Now, what does that mean? That word diligent has that idea to make every effort, to make your 
exalted position in your choice status, which is what you are in Christ, confirmed. Okay? It's an external confirmation. You already have assurance, but you're, it's, it's the co- external confirmation of the, something that has already taken place. And so sometimes it's translated sure, sometimes firm, sometimes certain, but it's used of an external confirmation, something that is stable and steadfast. Okay, that brings in that idea that's a contrast with the false teachers in verse 17 or verse 16, that they're untaught and unstable. And so what the, and in classical Greek, the word babaios is used uh, to refer to a firm foundation. Anybody think of what a firm foundation reminds you of? How firm a foundation. Now look at how this is written. They don't know who wrote this, by the way. Four verses, each one taking different promises and uh, applying them and rewriting them in, into verse. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. That's the foundation. It's not in my observing certain moral characteristics or qualities or so-called fruit in my life. It's going to the word of God that gives us the promise of our salvation and focusing on, on that. Uh, it, this word babayas is used in that sense several times in Hebrews. For example, in Hebrews 2.2 2, it reads, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, which again is an awkward translation. The word proved really translates a Greek word, genomai, which means something comes into existence. For example, in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. That's a me. It's a, it's another ex- existential verb, but it's describing the logos. And then after you have the verses, the initial verses talking about the logos who was always with God and was God, then you were introduced to John the Baptist. And it says, then there came a man called John. And that starts with Ginnamai. It's something coming into existence. A me, it always was in existence. Ginnamai, there comes, there comes a man into existence. So it has that, this idea. So it, it has the idea to become something that it wasn't, to come into existence, and there, or that something takes place. So here, proved should just be translated was, that the word spoken through angels was confirmed. Okay, that's the idea. And what we have in First First Peter one ten, it's a confirmation of our salvation, not the basis for our assurance. And uh, then we have Hebrews six nineteen, the, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both certain and babayas, unshakable or reliable. It's confirmed. It's solid. That's the the all the different ideas within that word. And then Hebrews 9.17, for a testament is babayas. It's confirmed after a man is dead. The word testament there should probably be translated like a will. It's confirmed after the person uh, has died. Colossians 2.7, we're rooted and built up in him and established. So that is stabilized in the faith as we grow spiritually. Other translations call it firm. ESV translates affirm, NASB translates it established, and they indicate stability there. We're stabilized as we grow. Hebrews 13.9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established, that is, made stable. We're stabilized by the Word of God, uh, by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have not been occupied with them. So we go back to Second Peter one nineteen. So we have a prophetic word. This is four verses late, four or five verses later than. Oh no, we're looking at ten. So it's nine verses later, and it's used in that sense of confirmed the prophetic word which was given to the prophets in the Old Testament. That when Peter is talking about when he and uh, James and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus in His glory. He says, this confirmed the, what the prophet said. 
So it's not an assurance. It's just a, a, an external confirmation that occurs after something has happened. So first Peter, second Peter one ten, therefore, brethren, make every effort to make your calling that is your exalted position that you now have in Christ and your choice status in Christ confirmed by living rightly. That's the same, really the same idea that he's going to, he's repeating at the end of, of second Peter. Our assurance is for one example, John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus said, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's our assurance of salvation. It's in the promise of God and the power of God. John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We're held by two omnipotent hands, and we can't get loose. The second use of this word, spudazo, is in 2 Peter 1, 15, where Peter says, moreover, I will be careful, I will make every effort. That's the idea there. Careful translates spudazo. He's saying, I will make every effort to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And then our passage, therefore, beloved, while you think about these future things. Okay, so this is, we're coming, coming back to this section. And, and then he says, make every effort to be found. And the word there in verse 14 that's translated, think about these future things, is this Greek word prostikeo, which means to wait for something, to anticipate it, to think about something in the future. That's what uh, the Greek lexicon suggests, which I think really helps us understand what's going on here. He's challenging them. He says, while you're thinking about these future things that we've just gone through, these future judgments, I want you to think about these things. And then the command, make every effort to be found. And so that uh, is that connects verse 14 to 12 and 13, which use the same verb. And Second Peter 3.12 says, looking for, and not, I pointed this out last time, it's not really hastening, looking for and, um, and establishing, or not, not establishing, I forget what the word was I used there. It's not hastening because we can't do anything to make the de- coming of the day of God come any faster. It's looking for and anticipating the coming of the day of God. And then verse 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then verse 14 says, Therefore, while you are thinking about these future things. So those three verses are all tied together by that one word. And then he gives the command, Make every effort to be found by him in peace without spot or blemish. And this word to be found is just the basic word for finding something. You can go back to, to Luke where you have the chapter with the woman who lost a coin and the shepherd who lost a sheep. And then you have the uh, prodigal son with the lost son. And they find, they get found. The woman finds the coin. Just the basic word for finding something. But in a lot of passages, it has to, it's used in a judicial context where it's related to uh, court proceedings in, in determining or evaluating somebody's status. And so you have these passages like that I've listed there, John 18:38, John 19:4 and 6. Every one of those is Pilate saying, I have not found any guilt in him. Then you have Acts 13:28, which is also talking about the fact that Pilate did not find any guilt in him. And uh, Acts 24.20 starts to change things. I've got, uh, got them over here on 24.20s in the middle of the slide. Or else let those who are, here themse- who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. So it has to do with discovering something in a judicial context. And 1 Peter 1.7 seven that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested 
or evaluated positively, uh, Dakimazo there, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's talking about here. Every effort to be found, in other words, related to your evaluation when Christ returns uh, at the rapture, to be found by him in peace. Now, generally, we look to this as at peace often as our positional relationship with God, that we are at peace with him, Romans 5.1. We are at peace with him. We have been reconciled to him. But this isn't a context that's talking about what we have in Christ and our position in Christ. It's talking about experiential behavior. So when we look at Romans 5.1 here, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, that's that's not what we're talking about here, that positional idea. In 1 John 2.28, there's a warning that when Christ returns, we need to be prepared and not have shame at his coming. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him. So the emphasis there is on the fact that we can be disobedient, rebellious children of God and be shamed at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. The next phrase, without spot or, and blameless, is a phrase that is related to experiential behavior, not related to uh, a, pos- a positional reality. So just finishing this verse up, the peace, therefore, is the peace is described as without spot and blameless. So that what we're going to see here is that's not talking about our position. It's talking about our walk with the Lord. Without spot is the negative of spilos, aspilos, and the blameless is the negative of momos, uh, without blemish. Now, that's a contrast to what Peter said in chapter 2 about the false teachers. This is why I'm looking at this as experience, because he says in Second Peter 2.13 about the false teachers that they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. And he's all the way through here, he's contrasting the way believers should live with the way these false teachers are teaching. 1 Peter 1.19 sets the standard in relation to Christ, that he was without spot or blemish, he was impeccable. He was qualified to go to the cross. It's not just a legal position, it is the experience that he was born without sin and he lived without sin. He was without spot or blemish. So that's talking about his life. First Peter, I mean, first Timothy 6.14 says that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. That's experiential. That's not talking about our peace with God in, in Christ. And then James 1.27 warns us, I talked about this a Tuesday night, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So that's an, that has to do with our Christian life and our Christian walk, that we are to be anticipating future judgment, future evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ, we are to walk in a manner that is worthy of our exalted position in Christ, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.1. And we are to think about this, Second Peter 3.15, and we'll come back next time and talk about, uh, about that particular uh, command and what that means. So the focal point here in verse 14 is that we are to be Diligent, eagerly seeking, eagerly looking for uh, <clears throat> those things, as we think about those things that we have just, just studied, as we reflect on those things, we are to eagerly 
pursue our spiritual growth so that we are found by him in peace when he comes, spotless and blameless. So we'll come back next time and we'll uh, wrap up the next couple of verses. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that we are to live today in light of the future, in light of what is uh, revealed to us in Scripture that is going to happen next, that as our Lord returns, then we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ And we certainly want to hear those words, well done, a good and faithful servant. And Father, we pray that we'll be challenged by this, recognizing that these are the significant commands in Scripture toward our spiritual life, that we're to walk worthy, we are to live lives that are unspotted by the world, and live lives that are are focused on serving you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I announced this last time that we're going to have a missionary report. And uh, we have Scott Ulrich and his wife, Robin, here. And um, I'm going to let Scott just introduce himself. As I said last week, I've known both Scott and Robin for a lot of years, but I didn't really know them well because I was a counselor at Camp Penal and they were a little bit younger or much younger and um, so we've just had a lot of time. We were up at a reunion at Penile about uh, Labor Day and just had a great time visiting and talking and talking about the word and theology. And he went through uh, Dallas Seminary with, at the same time, Bruce Bumgardner went to, and everybody here knows Bruce. And uh, so they had a uh, an enjoyable time of camaraderie while they were in seminary. So he's going to come up now. Come on up, Scott. And I've got to, we've got to switch cords. And you can either. The 24th, right? 24. When I'm on vacation. 24 October. Well, let's see if it's going to go here. Look at there. It is going. Well, I'm Scott Ulrich and my wife, Robin. Uh, can you hear me? Well, that's okay. Can you hear me now? Ah, there it is. Okay. So, uh, yeah, my name is Scott Ulrich. My wife, Robin, and I are both from Houston. We were actually born uh, in the same hospital here and uh, delivered by the same doctor, believe it or not, a year apart from one another. So an interesting fact of history. We do have uh, four children, Lauren, Aaron, Catherine, and Austin. And uh, we actually went overseas in the year 2000 to Bulgaria. And that's where we served. We lived and served in Bulgaria. That's in Eastern Europe. I worked at a Bible college initially. Uh, teaching uh, students, pastors, church planters, and we were uh, invited there to train the post-communist leaders who were then coming to Christ, really, in a wave. I know that uh, Robbie's been to Ukraine and other places. Well, after the fall of communism, a number of these uh, communist countries opened up to the gospel, and there was quite a response initially, and then no training was actually happening. And so we went as part of the second wave of missionaries after a Bible college had been established and began serving in uh, the Bible college there. And part of that uh, ministry also meant moving into other parts of the country, uh, not just staying in Sofia, but I traveled throughout the country. One of the things that we run into in Eastern Europe is, is what's known as Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's the primary religion. So in Bulgaria, 
85% of the population is going to identify themselves as Eastern Orthodox. And by that, they don't really mean anything other than I'm not a pagan, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not Muslim. And it has absolutely nothing to do with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just an identity. And to be born Bulgarian really is to be born Orthodox. And so they don't really understand the need for a personal relationship with Christ at all. Well, that was one side of it. The other uh, percentage, the largest percent, would be Muslim. Uh, they border with Turkey, as you probably saw on the slide. So we had a lot of uh, Turkish background people as well. And, in fact, I would work with a Korean pastor and began working with a Korean pastor who was serving the Turkish-speaking Roma or Turkish-speaking Gypsy community, and they're all Muslim background. So that means they've uh, either in involved themselves in some way, shape, or form with a folk version of Islam uh, or have more familiarity with Islam than they do with Orthodoxy. And we worked out in the villages in the middle part of the country training those uh Turkish uh, gypsies who had come to Christ and equipping them for church ministry. Now, I know that uh, in this country, education is very different from it, it the way it is in Bulgaria. In Bulgaria, they had compulsory education to the eighth grade. And so a lot of the Roma community will not have had education past the eighth grade. Now, we would train them, and so they, that was one of the reasons they couldn't come to a Bible college, so we would need to go out to the villages and equip them and train them there. They all had to read and write, and so that was one of the interesting things. Of course, I worked with a Korean pastor. This is a group of the uh, Roma leaders. When they would come for training, they would come, whatever village we were hosting the training in, the pastor of that church that was hosting the training him and anyone in his congregation was welcome to come and get the training. We always encouraged them to bring their wives so that their wives could actually hear what we were uh, teaching as well and that uh, they would be able to use that in their equipping women and children in their churches. So we did invite them to come for that as well. And we worked in little churches. Someone was mentioning the church here. You're doing some construction here. Well, believe it or not, these are, these are pictures of churches <laughs> and, uh, in Bulgaria. So a house that's turned into a place where you could gather together for worship in a village. And uh, you can see in one of the pictures that there's a pipe there. That little pipe is the stove that heats the room. I'm wearing a coat because you're only warm if you're by the pipe. So uh that uh that is where we served for 16 years but in 2016 we came back to the states so that our son could graduate from high school and we joined another organization called Global Training Network that's who we're serving with now this opened up opportunities for me to serve and to train pastors in other parts of the world and not simply in Bulgaria and part of my uh training of those pastors took me to the country of Nepal uh, where we worked with a group of leaders there, uh, training them, teaching them, so that they could also equip and train in their churches. Uh, this is the graduation for our students uh, in their celebration. Wait a second. I hit one button and it went two times. There we go. Uh, the other uh, places that I've been have been in Africa, I started off in Africa before we even left Bulgaria by going to uh, Uganda with our daughter and her school to put in a well to provide water in a village. And from there, I was asked to teach at a small Bible college in the northern part of Uganda. And I said to Robin when I came back, I, w I would love to be able to equip some of the pastors in other countries. And we actually talked and prayed about using Bulgaria as a hub where we could go and equip pastors in other countries because it would be in the same time zone. It wouldn't be a you know an eight-hour or ten-hour plane ride over there. We would be in the same time zone. We would just be getting on a, 
uh, plane and maybe traveling for two or three hours, but in the same time zone. That didn't materialize, but it did uh, open up doors when we got back here for me to go back to uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Liberia, and Senegal. And we were doing the same thing there, uh, basically doing modular education and training pastors. Small groups uh, in churches, they all are asked as they're going through training to be equipping someone else in a local dialect. We teach in English. I teach in English. In this case, we did have translators in Uganda in this village. And the fact that translator, he's standing on the right-hand side there of the screen. He's got a bright red shirt on. <laughs> he was translating for us. Uh, but uh, typically, I'll, I'll do training in English, and we're looking for those that can then take that into their local dialects and equip their uh, people in a local dialect. As of, uh, I guess, the beginning of COVID, when all of that began the shutdown, well, it certainly limited uh, travel to other countries. In fact, we just get a bulletin uh, recently from the... Uh, the consular services in Sofia uh, telling us that it's not recommended to travel to Bulgaria even now. And so they send out warnings. Well, uh, so what have we been doing over the past year and a half? Well, uh, one of the students that was in the training in Nepal actually is an Indian pastor, and he asked if I would come to India to train. And I told him I really didn't have uh, any uh desire to go there right away, but I told him I'd talk with him about it. And uh, I said, well, if you can find me some English speakers, I'll, I'll consider it. And he said, that'll be no problem, Scott. He said, there are more English speakers in India than there are in the United States and Canada combined. And I was shocked. I said, what are you talking about? You, well, uh, it was a, it was a uh, British uh, colony, so guess what they studied? They studied English, and they have a huge population. Well, I've still not been to India, but what we did do is we determined that we were going to go there via Zoom. And I really had no – I didn't know what to expect when he said, would you be willing to do some training? I said, I don't know. I guess we can talk about it. I said, you you see if there's some pastors uh, who would be interested who need training, and we'll talk. And I expected that to go uh, by with no response. Well, the next day he called and said, well, I think we've got about 20 that have expressed an interest in it. And uh, so that started me on a trajectory. And we've been going for now almost two years together. We've gone through a systematic theology. We're in a course in hermeneutics right now. They're talking about it. Uh, if I would do something else when we're done, uh, with that, and I said, well, we'll, we'll one step at a time. Uh, but that's really what we've been engaged in is just equipping pastors. And I don't know if you're familiar with the developing world, but I know that uh, Robbie has gone on a number of occasions overseas. And the fact is that about 90% of the pastors in the world outside of the U.S., so in the developing world, are untrained. They've had no Bible college, uh, no seminary no exposure to it, no access to it, by and large. And so that's really where we felt called when we were preparing at seminary to go and serve. And so uh, for the last several years now, that's what we've been engaged in. And it's been a joy really to see how the Lord has used it in the lives of these guys. I love those men, and I'm very thankful for them and their ministries. Uh, and they are regularly facing things that in this country we probably don't face very often. In fact, one of my Indian pastors sent me pictures of uh, uh, their church service where they were in a village, uh, got disrupted by radical Hindus, and they came in there and they dragged them out and they beat them. And they sent me pictures of their bruised bodies, but they were back again the next week, undaunted really. And so it just it, it humbles me when I see the commitment of these guys. They continue to share the gospel. The laws of the country forbid them to do conversion. They have strong anti-conversion laws right now in India. Nepal is following suit. Other countries are there as well. 
But, uh, yeah, so it's a humbling and rewarding thing to engage with these with these pastors. And so it's been a privilege for us to do that. Well, that's an introduction to what we're doing and what we've done. So I wanted, that's uh, my Bulgarian there, Bulgaria, thank you, uh, for just uh, having an opportunity to come and share with you a little bit about what we've engaged in and how we've been serving over the last almost 20 uh, some odd years. So uh, thank you to Robbie for setting up an opportunity for me to come be with you this evening. It's been a joy. So, Robbie, I'll, I, hopefully that's enough. Any questions? questions? Anybody have questions? They got no questions. I don't have any questions, but I'd like to thank you for what you have done. And, you know, well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been a joy. We've been, uh, we've been th- actually delighted in uh, the opportunities that God has opened for us to serve. So That's great. This to you, and I'll shut this off. All right, well, thanks. We've already closed in prayer, so we'll see you all Sunday morning.